Hi everyone, I'm Emily. And I'm Vincent. And this is the Lighthouse Lowdown. <laughs> I can't say my own name. What'd you say? I'm Vincent. I am I'm Vincent. Vincent. I don't know what I don't know who I am. I have a hard time saying your name too, like on the fly. It's unnatural to say Vincent. That's why I say Vince. Hmm. This is Vince. Here we are. Okay, wait. Part two. <laughs> Here we are. This is the episode where we're going to cover part two of Little Ross Lighthouse in Kirkabri, Scotland. That's right. Uh, we do have a history buoy for this episode because we're keeping it real and it's the same. Oh, we're, what are we drinking? Sorry, the audio kind of got run. This is uh, a little bit of Basil Hayden. Uh, compliments of our buddy Clay. So Shout out to Clay. Thanks, bud. You got some really nice gifts from people at our housewarming party. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting people to be so generous. Nope. Yep. We had a housewarming party a couple days ago, and the house is warm, and it was great. So, enjoying some whiskey a little afterward, and ready for part two. Kirk Cabri. Have we done? Is this the first part two that I've... I think it is. You... Your first episode was part two of the history of lighthouses. <laughs> Oh, it was, yeah. but you've never completed a two-part series. Here we are. So now you're here for part two. So our history buoy is buoys because they're not self-explanatory, except for that buoy may stand for buoyant. We don't know. <laughs> it may, like, okay, buoys short for a buoyant boy. <laughs> I'm just making a joke. I, I'm not sure that's actually what it's. I mean, I would. Assume. It's a fun word, buoyant buoys. Well, they do. They do float. That is the whole point of buoys is that they are buoyant and uh, they can be anchored to the ocean floor or wherever they're floating or can be allowed to just roll with the currents. How does that work? Uh, I am thinking that buoys that are current flowing <laughs> are for measuring purposes. Oh, like uh, research. That kind of shenanigans. What's that? It's not tides. Currents. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I think that's what it's called. That's what I've been calling it. So. Currents. Yeah. Okay. Did you just say that? Yeah. Okay. My brain was bouncing around looking for that <laughs> word. So. It's the whiskey. <laughs> well, I hope not. It hits pretty quick then. There are many different types of buoys. Uh, I won't list them all, but they can relate to color, shape, lights, sounds, etc. There's just all kinds of things. That uh, they switch it up with buoys. Oh, mm. I actually just saw a video from the Northern Lighthouse Board of them putting a buoy in the water, and it it's enormous. Really? Yeah, it's like the size of a lantern room. So not like the whole lighthouse, but you know, it's pretty big. Buoys are used for many things. It can be used for things like hazard markings, military use, research, speed markers, which are things you may have seen in... Like in boat lakes, races. like in lakes for people that are boating. What? Uh, the, oh, yeah. No wake zones. Yep. yep. Yeah. So those are buoys. They're just small buoys. Well, the one that I'm talking about, Northern Lighthouse Board posted, that's like a big buoy. Do you remember where it was going in? Like, no. I don't know if they had that many details. They just like, thank you for the footage of, you know, putting this buoy in the water. I wonder. It's probably not that exciting. I was going to say, I wonder... <laughs> what the uh, what the anchor is if it's like a concrete uh, with like a, a bolt in it or if it's a true metal 
anchor like you'd imagine on a ship. I don't know. At the bottom? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple different types. I know one of them is called a mushroom, and it's exactly what it sounds like. And I don't remember what the other one's like. I didn't look too deeply sure. into it. It's a history buoy, so back off. History buoy on <laughs> buoys. Lesser beacons are usually what replaces a lighthouse once it's taken out of service. And lesser beacons are also called large navigational buoys and measure 40 feet in diameter. I guess up to 40 feet in diameter. They're used to mark channels and bays and are also equipped with fog signals, beacons, and numerous other navigational aids. And there are also hundreds of thousands of these in use around the world. So Hmm. a lot more than lighthouses. But the ones that are replaced... Or the ones that, well. yeah, lighthouses that are decommissioned <laughs> and replaced. My face replaced. was just like uh, concern, panicked. Why the words no come out? Oh, uh, it's late. I was thinking, um, maybe it's something we can cover in the future. But the manufacturing of buoys would be interesting. I wonder if you know, is there one master? Bo? Bo? Ooh, ooh, I forgot that was just straight up whiskey. <laughs> yeah. He's not listening to me. He just happens to be walking this way. And we're back. So the manufacturing of buoys. Like, I wonder if there's one company out there um, just cranking them out or. I doubt it. Or probably not. That's probably diverse, but I'd be curious. Also, you'd probably want more local buoy makers since if they're going to be 40 feet in diameter and like probably a ton. Right. You wouldn't want to have to ship a buoy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, uh. You just let it flow along with the current so it gets where it's going. Go with the flow. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to move on. That's It was a short one and a little bit sporadic because I actually wrote these notes a long time ago and didn't look over them until this very moment. Here we are. We're all experiencing <laughs> the, it. So they're, they're, I could have like a whole episode on it because there's so many different types, but yeah. I won't do that because this is part two of Little Ross Lighthouse. Little Ross. You can have a lot of editing to do. I know. So here we go. Let's do a little let's do a little recap. Okay. Of part one. Little Ross. I'll just sum it up. In that last episode we talked about the fight to get Little Ross Lighthouse up on yep. Little Ross. And the construction of the lighthouse and who the Stevenson family is. And also it? talked a little bit about Little Ross Island, where the lighthouse resides. That's what we talked. Do you have any questions about part one? Uh, we've talked a lot of lighthouses recently, so yeah. the struggles of building it were getting it. I remember for a long time they couldn't get it; uh, they couldn't get the government or to approve it and then to pay for it. Right. And they did, and then the two sons of the person whose name is Plaque, Robert. 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 Robert's two sons. Uh, I think wow. his name's Robert. Sorry for that accent. There's a possibility that his name's not Robert. We're gonna go with Robert for my recap. <laughs> Robert's two sons uh, were the engineers who actually constructed it. His name's plaqued out front. Right. Um, I love that that stuck with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a moment of contention. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, what else was noteworthy? The whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking about all Last the diverse one. wildlife. Yeah. yeah. And I talk a lot about that in here, too, because the, the reason why they know how much wildlife was around is because the light keepers kind of like make it a sport that was passed down to other light keepers to keep track of birds. That's <laughs> cool. That's cool. So, and this is in Scotland. Scotland. Kurt Kubri. Right. Kurt Kubri. Okay. I'm going to not try to repeat that. 
no that's yeah i'm probably even pronouncing it wrong but that's how it was spelled all right let's jump right in so this episode we're covering the keepers and an event which marked the last of keepers at this lighthouse and then also what's going on with it today what is going on with it today (laughs) okay quick question hopefully it's not jumping ahead the engineers robert's children did they ever live at this lighthouse only while it was being built, they actually stayed in the keepers' cottages. First ones, mm-hmm. I take it. I think also Robert Hume, who was the contractor, mm-hmm. also stayed here. A couple yeah. of Roberts involved. Might as well. It's good. Actually, I know for a fact Thomas was living on this island because it was driving him crazy. And in one of his last letters, he was like, well... We have no choice but to finish this on time because I am not staying here any longer. And then he sent a, a letter like a couple weeks after that that was like, so I'm leaving early. <laughs> <laughs> he checked he's, out. Yeah, he's like, I, I think they can handle it, so I'm going to go. That, that, was basic, that was the gist of the letter he sent to his dad. He was just like, okay, so I'm out. <laughs> I wonder what he did after that. I don't know. Probably went to go build another lighthouse. He probably had a break, and then he went to go build another lighthouse. Okay, let's jump in. Okay, so we're going on to keepers. The very first principal keeper here was Thomas Ritson, and the first assistant, whoa, assistant was Alexander Law, which is a super cool name. Alexander Law. Alexander Law. They spent a few months before they started their service with the builders, breaking ground on gardens, moving into their houses, and also assisting with livestock, furniture, fuel, etc., so, like, anytime they had anything that needed to be moved into the keeper's cottages or their, the garden, I didn't know the size of it until I saw a picture when yeah. I was choosing photos to post on Instagram. Our Instagram, at the lighthouse lowdown. The lighthouse lowdown. It's very large. It's a noteworthy garden. It's, I thought it was another courtyard, but it's a garden, which makes sense because they made a lot of their own food. Right. So, anyway. So, they actually moved in to the lighthouse Months before they started service, before the lighthouse was even finished. So that's kind of fun. A Lord Cockburn visited in... That is a cool name. (laughs) Visited in 1844 and said everything was incredibly spick and span, saying, quote, even the coal house of each of the two keepers was as bright as a jeweler's shop. Wow. So high, high praise for the first two keepers here at this lighthouse. They have great things to say. Keeping their coal nice and clean. Coal is clean. The coal is shining. <laughs> he then raved about the lunch they had there of homemade oat cake, cheese, butter, and ale, and that the hotel cost only a sixpence, which I don't know. I'm going to look right now, see how much that is. I'm interested in oat cake. Wikipedia. Let's go. Sounds like a really old school rapper's name. It sixpence. Was, it was coinage worth one 40th of a pound or half of one shilling. All right. First minted in 1551. That's really, really old. <laughs> uh, okay, old as wow. shillings. Anyway, wow, I got sidetracked. The sixpence oh. for Hi, the uh, hotel. Yep. The cat. So he's basically, he, he came there to stay while he, he was just visiting, just being like, hey, what is up? What is up? Can I stay? And they charge him a sixpence. <laughs> so. But he just stayed for lunch and just. A night. I think it's funny that they called, he called it a hotel. It's like, it's my house, but okay. <laughs> We're just going to charge you a sixpence. Just give me a sixpence and we'll call it good. It's a good deal. Both Thomas and Alexander had wives. Uh, Thomas brought his wife with him and Alexander married in 1844, which was right after the lighthouse 
happened. He's like, hey, you want to see my new project? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, cool. you all about this life? It's pretty lit. And Alexander's son, guess his name. Alexander the second. Nope, just Alexander. <laughs> was born on the island a year later. Not long after that, Alexander was moved to another lighthouse and was replaced with an assistant that lasted less than a year and replaced again with Robert Burnett, who had remained there for 10 years as an assistant keeper. Hmm. So hefty amount of time. He brought six kids up on this island. Not previous, but like she had six kids on this island. Yeah. That's a lot of kids to be having on a little lighthouse island. On a tiny... I mean, it's 29 acres. Yeah. That's, a, that's isolated. The kids... Think about the kids. The children. <laughs> I did read. Uh, I don't. I didn't take notes on it because uh, it's just too much. I, I say this a lot where I'm just like, oh, well, I read that this happened. Yeah, screw those kids. Okay. <laughs> I read that actually Keeper's kids were very popular and everyone like were was jealous of them every time oh. they went into school because they did take a boat to school in the morning. So it's not. They, That's pretty cool. They have to come home at a certain time of day. Otherwise, the tide goes out and they can't get home. So they don't really oh. have a choice to stay behind and have fun with their Socialize. friends. Yeah. Anyway. That's neat. But still, they were the popular kids. They had the life everybody else The wanted. cool chores. <laughs> the principal keeper was paid an extra 10 pounds a year uh, at a total of 50 pounds to have a servant and to house the boatman. I also read that this servant, who's called the housekeeper, is a majority of the time a sister of the principal keeper. When he comes onto the island, he brings his sister and she does housekeeping. It's interesting. That is interesting. At the most, the island had a population of four adults and ten kids during its lifespan. That's enough. That's (laughs) That's a lot. That's 14 people on... And it's not like, oh, well, we can spread out and there's a couple houses, whatever. It's like, your houses share a wall. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well like it, i'm just imagining they get mad at each other they get yeah. in a fight and they want to storm off and it's like well, we just you walk off guess to, I'll just to the edge of walk a cliff. around the lighthouse <laughs> <laughs> walk from one cliff to the next cliff and come back so lots of principal keepers and assistant keepers have passed through working at this lighthouse in the nearly two centuries of its existence so it's just too many keepers to talk about mm. so i will just talk about some that have experiences or just anything I thought was interesting. I read through all of them. I read them all. And so I just wrote down the ones that I thought were interesting. So first up, we have Robert Watson, who was the assistant keeper from 1861 to 1864. He was buying provisions in town and shipwrecked on the way back. And his body was found weeks after the wreck. (laughs) We're starting off really, really warm and fuzzy. That was Robert. Robert Watson. Yeah. The accident also killed the boatman. The boatman that was giving him passage, and the boatman's grandson, who was just tagging along, having a good time. <sighs> the lighthouse board paid insurance to Watson's wife and their children, but the boatman's wife was also trying to get paid for this accident. Yeah. But they don't cover random boatmen. And so it was like this sad thing where people are saying, like, please just like give her something. She has nothing. Please help yeah. her. And they just had to be like, I'm sorry, we don't do that. <laughs> like, we, we can't do that. So. That's so sad. Yeah, it was this big thing, but I just kept a little note in here. So next up is Joseph Dick. He was an apprentice gardener, but little Ross was really re- visible from where he worked yeah. while he was growing up. And over time, his ambition was to be a lighthouse keeper just because he loved it so much. 
He was trained with the Northern Lighthouse Board at other stations and came back to Little Ross in 1867. And it was his first home with his new wife and the birthplace of their first child, Allison. That's cool. Yes. That's a great first house. Well, that you get married and then you go to the lighthouse. It's like your first home. It's kind of fun. He served for two and a half years at Little Ross. Generally, at the end of service at a lighthouse, a register of keepers records the keepers posting to a station. So it'll either say, you know, relocated to this or um, retired or whatever. But for... Update Facebook status. Exactly. (laughs) For Joseph, uh, it says Japan out of commissioners. Commissioners was Northern Lighthouse Board, another word for it. So the story behind this is Joseph was most likely transferred in a special arrangement with Japan. The government of Japan was making efforts to facilitate foreign maritime trade by modernizing their buoys and lighthouses. Of course. So who do they need? Specialists. They need Joseph. (laughs) A British ambassador Mm -hmm. in Japan recommended the Stevenson engineers and Joseph Dick as part of the team selected to travel to Japan and assist with modernizing their stuff. Joseph became involved in training keepers as well as assisting with construction and maintenance of 25 lighthouses over there. In Japan? Yeah. That's really cool. Including Tunoshima, which is now a lighthouse museum, where they have some of his belongings on display, such as a chessboard, an ornate chessboard, and a sculpture of him. (laughs) Made of what? I don't know. Like, I don't know. (laughs) What are, like, stone? Marble? Wood? Could be anything. Yeah, really. Really? (laughs) Sorry. So Joseph distributed... So here's the reason why they loved him so much. Joseph, first of all, came over there, helped him modernize. Uh, At this time, they were at war with Russia. And he distributed a lot of his wealth to the needy in the form of rice and other food during the war. Good man. So his 25, he was in charge or a part of, or maybe both? A part of constructing... 25 in Japan. Do you know where he lived? Oh, I didn't write it down. I mean, he could. He probably moved all over, but he moved a couple times. Yeah, but there was one place where he lived most of his life, and that's also where he died. But I didn't write it down. You want to know why? In Japan, because Joseph's a little bit. He he died because he's a little bit. I said no. I didn't write it down because he's a little bit. Do you want to know why? Why? I'm so confused. He died because he's a bitch, or you didn't write it down because he's a bitch. I didn't write it down because he's a bitch. Oh, okay. You're not picking up on the bomb about to drop. Yeah. Joey B. Here it is. What did he do? Joseph's wife, Jessie, did not prosper in Japan, and the visit was promised to be five years, and five years came up, and he goes, I'm going to stay. He likes Japan. And so it shows, records show, that she returned to Scotland with their four children, and Joseph stayed behind with his Japanese lover, who he had three kids with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Classic Joseph. Yeah, you go home. I'll uh, I'll be here. I'll be here. I'm going to have another family because get out of my life. <laughs> what a stinker. Upon his death, he shared zero of his large amassed fortune with his real children. Great. <laughs> Wait, his first children. Yes. The other ones, I guess. I mean, the other ones are probably real as well. They're, They're just Japanese. What, what is it? Out of wedlock. Mm. He's what? never divorced his oh, wife. He didn't marry the Japanese woman as well? No. I don't know. I suppose I could have less animosity no, about I mean, it's, this subject. But it's, it's pretty it's, shitty. It's crap. It's not good. Don't ditch your wife. 
Next up, we're going to leave Joseph in the dust. He's dead. So we're moving on to William McKay, who served in 1872 to 1884 as the longest serving keeper. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Yeah, he did a good job. He did a good job. Don't but write nothing down. extraordinary. Skip it. Donald Georgeson in 1885 was the first keeper to indicate that he had a hobby, which is ornithology, which is keeping track of birds. I, was gonna say, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and started a trend between the keepers of sending updates to the Scottish Naturalist, which I believe is a newspaper or a magazine. William Begg who was after him, continued the tradition of ornithology and also sent in insects. And the Scottish naturalist said, uh, quote, Mr. W. Begg kindly sent about 40 moths, representing 12 species, and a beetle from Little Ross Lighthouse. These were especially welcome, seeing they came from a station not previously on the contributing list. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of funny that they're like, he sends 40 moths and a beetle. It's very exciting. New data. Also, he was the first to see a Siberian chiff-chaff in southwest Scotland, which the paper was very excited about, did a whole section on a Siberian chiff-chaff. It's a bird, but I don't know anything else about it. (laughs) I was going to look up Siberian chiff-chaff. Let me look. Okay, it is an extremely, extremely ordinary-looking bird. Nothing special. What color? Kind of like Joseph. Leave him in the dust. He's brown. He's got a little bit of a pale tummy and a little tiny little beak. Well, ornithology, uh, I'm sure it has its following. Oh, yeah. I love to watch birds, but I don't keep track. Well, I don't know. I kind of do. I've been trying to figure out what kind of bird we have in our backyard for a little while. It's really small. <laughs> Is it a hummingbird? No. Remember, it's a little sparrow, and I was like, if it has spots on its tail, then it's this, but I don't Right. Right. William Begg mentioned a lot in his notes to the magazine that so many birds died hitting the lantern that they would use them in stews and pies. Oh. Yeah, that's bad. Then the boatman returning from the lighthouse would have sacks full of dead birds, which would go into the stew at the poorhouse. Oh, my goodness. At the (laughs) poorhouse? Was that a last name, I take it? No. (laughs) That's just what it is. Hey, we got you some pigeon stew, you poor people. Yeah, well, it's fancy. It's Chiff Chastu. Chiff <laughs> Beg's daughter, Catherine, arrived at Little Ross, who frequently stayed for long periods of time. She was a regular on the lighthouse, and took a liking to the assistant keeper at the time, George Mackey, despite mm-hmm. an age difference of 19 years. Which, back then, whatever. How love old is was love. she? Like 12? No, she was in her 20s. All right. Their relationship was one of discretion and sneaking around. <laughs> yeah, love is love. And they were uh, that's because they were always under the watchful eye of a father and a superior officer. Let's not forget here that George is an assistant keeper, so he's going <laughs> past his superior. He's not in the uh, he's not in the bounds of the job description anymore. Right. Yeah, he's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the two married in the twenty on the twenty fifth of February. 1916. Remember that date? February 25th. 1916. Gotcha. 1916. And Catherine birthed a child in the 5th of September of that year. You notice anything? February is month number two. September is month number nine. So there's not enough time for <laughs> the baby to be baby. No. Mm-hmm. 
actually called a shotgun wedding in some categories of the world. The wedding certificate they had had been altered in William's hand. The date was scratched out and replaced with 1915. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, they wouldn't have said, yes, we conceived this child before marriage. <laughs> so when he found out, he just changed the date back yeah, just, another year. Know, just it never happened. Out. It just never happened. Wow. <laughs> kind of funny. Wow. So, but okay, besides all of that, George's relationship with the family was still really good. They had nothing but nice things to say about him. So besides the 19 years and the baby out of wedlock, kind of reminiscent of Joseph with his Japanese lover. Mm. Three times. <laughs> George kept a journal. Okay, so this... this uh, okay, so I've talked about this with you. George's journal. Yeah, he's talking about his babies. Mm-hmm. But I just think he's... The way he talks about his daughter and his son is so cute. They had... I don't know how many kids. I want to say like six. Anyway, George kept a journal in the hope that Mary, his daughter, would like to read it someday, which I think is adorable. He talked about her in just about every entry, and I wrote some notes, uh, especially the first six months of having the baby. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, For the following month or so, got a good many small presents for baby. (laughs) He says, Took baby to the dairy to have her weighed. He took babies to the dairy to have them weighed. Yeah, that's where the, that's where the scales are, of course. <laughs> I think that's funny. The milk scales. And he says it so many times. They have her weighed just an excessive amount. I'm, I'm thinking it's probably once a month, but it sounds like a lot. She turns the scale at 15 pounds, getting on fine and a good wee soul. He just has nothing but nice things to say about her. Oh, this one's good. I am beginning to wonder if any hair is going to grow on her head at all, for up to date, it is seriously scarce. I dare say one might see as much on a gooseberry. <laughs> scarce? I'm glad the first thing you said after that sentence was correcting me on my grammar. Well, it got me a little questioned. I was... Oh, scarce. So that was his first daughter? <laughs> I have so many notes. Wait. Keep reading. Let's go. Okay. He says, it gives me joy to look on this sweet little face. Love chain links this heart of mine to thee. Often I wonder if this life will end all this or will we meet our loved ones beyond. Someone says on that happy Easter morning, all the graves their dead restore. Father, sister, child, and mother meet once more. If such be the case, it will be grand. Love that he look is looking at his little tiny baby daughter and he's like, contemplating life and death and all of time (laughs) faith uh, it's something yeah in 1919 george was transferred to the isle of may inexplicably he bought a piano for 99 guineas oh i put like a note to talk more about this i know some stuff guineas are a currency that were not actually being used at this time Hmm. but they were still used to describe the same amount of money that a guinea used to be which so it's like when we say bucks what yeah i thought that was like a slang term tell me what it is uh well i guess it is slang but i think that uh a buck is a dollar and a dollar was the price of a buck skin at one time oh. uh, a hide of a skinned deer yeah. so uh, maybe i'm incorrect on that but yeah That's so interesting five bucks was five hides wow times have changed yeah they're much more expensive now (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, a guinea was 71% gold. So Really soft. This piano he carried with him to every station he went what? to. Yeah. Every time he moved, he kept this piano. It was a full-size piano? Yeah. Now, two of his great-great-grandchildren still play on this same piano. That is cool. Yeah. And they won the Piano Forte Duet class at the Manx Music Festival in Douglas in 2016. He'd probably be so proud of them. That piano's probably worth a ton of money now. Yeah, I bet so. But that's like an heirloom that they're never going to give up. What? I bet so, yeah. (laughs) Pianos are not cheap, so that's awesome. Moving along, Ian Summers, assistant keeper, 1958. Mm. Whoa. Yeah, we're moving along. Everybody else was trash, so I moved on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you just passed World War One. <laughs> what? World War Two. Oh, yeah. I went from 1919 to 15, or 1958. Anyway, so Ian painted the entire lighthouse in one morning before the principal keeper woke up. It was... The correct color but i just think it's funny that they were supposed to do it together it was like a thing that neither of them wanted Why? to do and ian was like i'm gonna finish this before the sun comes up. that's how badly he didn't want to work with the other guy he's like i'm gonna wake up no at 10 well, p.m and start i guess i don't know <laughs> so he spent a great deal of time fishing for lobsters around the island he sold his catch to john king a kurt kubri fisherman who supplied the lobster to local hotels good. good income going yeah one day, Ian noticed his bait was low and went out to ask a skipper of a passing trawler if he could have some of his bait. And the skipper often stopped on Little Ross and actually knew Ian, so he was happy to let him borrow some bait. Mm. And he said if Ian came out the next morning, then he would give him some more bait. Like, here, have some more, but come and visit my, in me and my little trawler. Yeah. <laughs> so the next morning, they set out um, Ian and Harry, who was the principal keeper, and they find out that the trawler is six miles away. And they're in a little dinghy. <laughs> like, ore powered. Yeah, a dinghy. Mm-hmm. And it made them a little concerned that they would have to row six miles away. But they powered through. That's a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so they were, once they got there, they were invited below deck for ham and egg breakfast sandwiches. And came back out to find the dinghy was so full of bait that the thwarts were covered, which is the seats. That guy loved them. I know. I was For like, some reason. He had a. He probably just had a little crush on him. Little man crush. Yeah, crush on Ian. Dang. So you overwhelmed him with bait. Yeah. They they only had like a couple inches of the edge of this boat oh, caressing no. the water, and so the whole time it says they're like white knuckled, just trying to get. Cause, if you think about it, there is that's six miles is a little too far to swim. Oh yeah, <laughs> there are people who can do it. Yeah, not these guys. No, nah, I'm not the average person. Oh, and anyway, so they they made it back, but then he found out that Harry couldn't swim. After oh my gosh! Also, <laughs> what is this bait? Is this like shredded up fish? I bet it, yeah, it's like little fish or so, shredded up fish kind of thing. So it's something that's gonna go bad. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how oh, well, I don't fishing know. Chum, for lobsters I guess works. you can, oh. How does one fish for lobsters? Maybe it's just like chum where you like grind it up and it's just you spread it in the water to like attract stuff, but you don't catch them with it. I guess. Well, I know like crab traps are like cages. They lower them down. Yeah. I think that's the same for, oh, <sighs> I don't know. No idea. I just eat them. So Ian, also of note, supplied the first little television set on the island and... 
also added a putting green. Keeping it. Of course he did. Fancy. Classic Scotland move. Ian got lots of visits from his girlfriend while he was on the island and married three months before he moved to a new lighthouse in 1960. This same year, keepers were removed from the lighthouse and it was automated. Why is that? Because <laughs> that, that was the end of days. I don't know. The Mayan calendar in Scotland ended in 1960. I don't know. We're going to switch gears and start looking at this event from the perspective of David R. Colin, who wrote the book Life and Death on Little Ross, which is what I used mostly. What? What time period are you talking about now? We're in 1960. Okay. 1960. Okay. Yeah. Life and Death on Little, Little Ross. Ross. Yeah. Uh, that's the book and reference that I've been using most as research material mm -hmm. on this episode and last episode. So we're going to talk about David who is the author of this book. Um, David grew up in Kirkcabri with his father, Thomas, who came from a long line of fishermen. While his father stayed clear from the sea due to his grandfather and uncles all perishing in the eye mouth fishing disaster of 1881. Whoa. No idea what happened. I'd like to know. Eye mouth? As in... It's probably eye myth. Oh, okay. I'm just trying my best. Mm. David was drawn to the sea. His I heart stopped. was pulled to the ocean. Passion unseizable. So even though... Like the tides rolling in. <laughs> so even though Thomas kind of steered clear of anything to do with the ocean because of what happened to his family, uh, he fully supported David in his want to be on the ocean. Mm -hmm. So he built... Uh, David built a sailing dinghy when he was just 16. And his father went with him to sailing classes. And he was not a natural, but enjoyed it. <laughs> And it kind of opened the doors uh, for Thomas because he's lived here since the 30s and spent many years wanting to explore Little Ross. Mm -hmm. So now he knew like the basics of sailing and he had his son who was really good at sailing so that he wanted to go check it out. So his father took off work and they planned a trip to go check out Little Ross on August 18th, 1960. To get to the island, you have to leave at high tide. Otherwise, your boat would be grounded because the water goes away. Right. And so this was around like 9.30 in the morning that you yeah. have to leave. And he said the weather was nice. It was very sunny, very light wind. A good day to visit Little Ross. <laughs> it was a good day. Yeah. But was. not for long. <laughs> so he arrived. they arrived at the island after a couple hours. Which remember that I said that you could walk to the island yeah. at low tide? Yeah. I am wondering why it takes a couple hours to sail there. Uh, total speculation. Yeah. The land bridge that's walkable when low tide is up or low tide is happening. Maybe in the way. Uh, well, it's, it's probably not, you know, a perfect bridge drop off to where you can just sail next to it for fear of running aground. Mm, you think it takes so long so because you, they're, you probably leave from careful. a port that's probably not right where the land bridge is at. And then you probably arrive to, you're right. I don't know. That's probably right. My sea experience is uh, zero. So, While they were approaching the lighthouse, they noticed a boat was washed up high on the rocks, which can happen when the tide goes out. Yeah. If you had a boat at high tide and low tide, there's a chance it could just be floating up on some rocks. Washed but it's a up. weird spot for a dinghy. Like you wouldn't park your boat <laughs> where it's going <laughs> to end up on rocks. Dude. So they docked on this little beachy area that they had going on, ate lunch, and then headed to the lighthouse to greet the keepers. And on duty at this time was Robert Dixon, who was the assistant, 
and John Thompson, the principal keeper. And John was off duty on a little vacation with his wife, going out, having a good time, beach time. And so a relief keeper, Hugh Clark, came to assist. So he took over for the principal keeper. Yeah. David and Thomas, they knock on both keeper doors and got no answer. So they assumed they were asleep from working the light all night long and went out to explore the island. There's no signs of anyone. Uh, and they said, no signs aside from the distant sound of a phone ringing from the keeper's dwelling that was never answered. So the father and son are wandering the island looking for keepers. No, just hanging out. Like they, they didn't suspect anything was bad. But they now just, they are. No. In hindsight, he was like, hmm. <laughs> Things are looking fishy. But you wouldn't think. I mean, you're just like, oh, they're sleeping. Let's go check it out. Plus, there's always people on the island. Like this, yeah. this is a place where people stop to stretch their legs. So yeah. it's like, it's not a big deal. 4.30 comes around, which is when they need to leave to ride the flood tide back to Kirkbury. So David and his father check one more time at the cottages. And this time, his father peers through the window and thinks he sees a man in bed. And so he goes inside. Moments later, he comes back out in a rush saying to get help because, quote, a man is ill in his bed. David flags down someone they knew who was fishing nearby. And the three of them go in, finding a keeper in his bed. And there's a towel wrapped around his head and rope segments scattered all around. What? Yeah. His father calls the police from the dwelling who say because of the tide, the flood tide coming back in, they can't come out for a while. <laughs> so they just sat around in silence for three hours. <laughs> till the next tide movement. Just until they could get at least towed out. The thing is they like knew this guy was dead. They didn't check him out. But like he's not answering the door, the phone. Yeah, they they got close to him. They know he's yeah. dead. It's just how it is. There's so. deadness about him. Yep. Yeah. There's a dead. There's some dead in the air. <laughs> they start asking questions to themselves that they're assuming this is a keeper. They don't know what they look like, so they're wondering where's the other keeper. Yeah. Like, did he find that the other keeper was sick or the keeper was sick and go for help or something. Yeah. It was starting to get too bad. And so they tried to call for help. So eventually they got cold in the house uh, and went to the lighthouse tower where it was a little bit hotter. And the last log in the log book was at 3 AM, which is weird because they update it like every time they do anything. Yeah. And there's, there's always something going on at the lighthouse or something they're observing. Like I said, they keep track of birds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Upon, Closer inspection, they find the barrel of a sawed-off shotgun in the workbench vice in the workshop. So, wait, the, the barrel that's been cut off. It's still in the vice. So they made a sawed-off shotgun and left the remnants in the vice. Right. Okay, that's... So 7 p.m. rolls around. It's like, come on. And first of all, they're trapped on this island. They're like, we have to leave at 4.30. And that like, is a long day. Just hang out. We'll uh, take care of it. Well, David was saying the day was so nice. And when he walked in, the keeper's dog was there. And it was like a happy dog. Yeah. And there was like a, a little bird in a cage that was twittering. And everything was super clean. And it was bright and sunny. Yeah. And so they didn't, like, it was sad. But it wasn't morbid to him. You know, he yeah. was just like. So at 7 o'clock. Help arrives in the form of two policemen, a doctor, and surprisingly, a Northern Lighthouse board official who just happened to be coming by to tell yeah. the keepers that the lighthouse was soon to be automated. It's a little sad. The timing's Very, not good. Yeah. <laughs> 
So David and Thomas show them inside and just wait out. But they just wait outside. They don't need to go in there and check yeah. it out. First to emerge is the official who is promptly and violently sick outside the door. Oh. And you'll find out why later. The policeman confirmed that the victim is Hugh Clark and he'd been murdered. He covered his face because he shot him. Can you just let me finish, please? No. Underneath the towel was a bullet hole done execution style with a twenty-two rifle. What? In fact, when the doctor lifted Hugh's head to check for an exit wound, a bullet fell from his left eye socket, which is why the official came running out. What? That is wild. <sighs> I have a comment on that at a later time. I need to do it right now. Um, it's a little bit of like, I don't know, fandom or something, but people have talked about the twenty-two caliber rifle being like, you know, like an assassin's choice, basically, because um, I don't know how true this is. This might be totally false now that I'm going to say it. Uh, <laughs> you could you can fire a bullet out of a 22, and the ballistics are such that it would enter a skull, but often not exit. Oh, my. So bounce around. Oh, no. Until it runs out of energy, which... What the heck? It's all very theoretical, but... It, it's possible that that's what happened, and that's why the bullet was at the eye socket. Oh, gross. Thank you for that. Mm, you're welcome. <laughs> this is a, I thought I painted it themes now. quite well, but you went ahead. That's and wild. Took it. <laughs> Upon returning to Kirkcubri in the night, Thomas and David were swarmed with the press, who trapped them in their house for two days following the discovery because someone had overheard them calling for help. And spread it all around the town. Of course. So by the time they got back, they were like, there's been a murder. And they were considered suspects. <laughs> I mean, Father and son murder weekend. Because why not? They were the ones that found him. Yeah. The smellers, the feller. <laughs> I have never heard that comment made. What? The smeller is the feller. We always said that in like elementary school. When he someone's who like, smelt Ew. it, dealt it. Oh, <laughs> I see. Yours is a little bit more... Better, I think. Oh. The press was a pain in the butt and spread blatant lies about the case, uh, such as like excessive gore and even details about the lighthouse that were false because the press weren't allowed on the island. So they never... They don't even know what the lighthouse looks like. They're just like, climb to the seven steps to the lighthouse. And they're like, there's no steps on this lighthouse. <laughs> it's the fake news network. Yeah. And they're, they would say... They were saying like, cut from ear to ear across his throat. Yeah, they had fun with it. Yeah, I'm glad they had a good time. I'm sure that was really fun for Hugh's wife. The estimated time of death was 6 a.m. And at 9, 10 a.m., Robert, the assistant mm -hmm. keeper. Oh, wait, or was he? I don't remember. Yes, assistant keeper. Was spotted in Ross Bay driving Hugh's car after rolling up in Hugh's dinghy and just ditching it on the rocks of the mainland. Like, what a dingus. Seems like a murder vibe. You kill a man. You steal his boat. Steal his dingy. You steal his car. <laughs> the nerf. He was promptly in a minor car crash, probably because of the stress of taking the life of another human being, and politely gave his name to the other driver. Yeah, oh, play yeah. it cool, man. He play said, cool. I'm Robert Dixon, Ross Lighthouse. <laughs> Not little Ross. Like, you're on the run. You don't give your name and he he wouldn't make this mistake again but 
He then rented a car under the principal keeper's name. And the police were tipped off to this and stopped him on August 19th. So the next day. He did not resist arrest and said, quote, all right, all right. I know all about it. (laughs) So classy. What a turd. They found the sawed off shotgun in between the seats of the car he rented and 80 pounds in cash, which was the exact amount that had been sent to Hugh for his pay the day before the murder. It's like, this is theft. Like, don't tell me you shot this guy. Is that why you murdered him? They don't know. But he knew all about it. Robert was charged with capital murder and the theft of his victim's car, boat, and wages and taken to trial November 27th, 1960. So David had to testify as a witness on the first day. And this is the guy who wrote the book, the one who found his body and all of that. But found the process so interesting that he went to each day of the trial. So he kind of talks more about it. Hmm. Robert was painted as cruel, cold-blooded, calculated, and said that his motive was the theft of property, which murder is not necessarily for. Like, you don't need to murder someone to steal their money. Yeah. It's probably, like, you're probably worse off by murdering someone (laughs) for something because police are going to come after you a little bit harder than if you just stole some money. Plus, everyone knows you, so you can't just go on the run. Like, we've already proven that. They said he may have been attempting to form some sort of elaborate mystery deal where no one would ever know what happened. Like, he, like they think that the ropes, the rope fragments that were around him, his body on the bed, yeah. were to tie him to rocks and toss him out to sea so that he, like, would never be yeah. found. And yeah. then there would be no evidence of what happened. It would just be two mysteriously gone keepers. Which is our next episode. The defense pointed to Robert's rocky life before being a relief keeper. This is where it gets a little bit sad. First, that he was in an approved school after theft. So an approved school is just a place where they put kids who have done some sort of crime or something. Severe headaches after a fall from a horse. So here we have some proof that he had something happening. Admittance to a mental hospital shortly after that. And an attempted suicide after he left the Royal Navy without leave. So he just ditched the Navy. And when he came back, attempted suicide. In fact, when a patient at the mental hospital, a doctor had certified that Dixon was insane. But he never took the steps to make it official or like formalize the certification. So it never showed up on paper. He was like, oh, yeah, I I did a test. I did the tests. And Yeah. yeah, he's... One flew over the cuckoo's nest. (laughs) So David says in his book that Robert was declared guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. So they were going for this whole insanity plea. uh, But I think the way this may have gone, especially because it's in the 60s, is that they didn't have a trial that wasn't biased. And so they probably heard from the press about this horrible, gruesome murder and, you know, the... Prosecutor. Prosecutor Mm -hmm. is painting him as a really, really mean, horrible person. So he gets sentenced to death. And five days before the execution is planned for the 21st of December in 1960, a law was passed that the death sentence was now not allowed. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Five days? Like, that is very stressful. I would think it's actually worse. You think so? Depends. However, two years later, he took his own life in prison from a drug overdose. Because he's messed up in the head. 
Yeah. He should be in a mental he, institution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know anything else. But he should have never left the mental hospital, really. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's certifiably insane, but, you know, without the certification. So go be a lighthouse keeper. I wonder what, I wonder if there's anything that happened between him and the head keeper, who I've already forgot his name, who he murdered. Like if they were. Well, he murdered the relief keeper, but they all knew oh. each other. Like they worked together for. Oh, the relief keeper was common on the grounds. Yeah. He was there often. Yes. I wonder. Yeah. We just won't know that story. Yeah. So poor. John Thompson and his wife come back from vacation. Yeah. He's like, you guys can't do anything without me. <laughs> He's like, what the heck happened here? Comes back to find that their two friends who they regularly shared breakfast with, which is what he said. One was dead mm. and the other was in jail accused of his murder. Mm-hmm. And uh, also that they would be moving soon since the lighthouse was going to be automated. <laughs> no one had breakfast with anymore. It's pretty sad. November That's 17th, right. 10 days before the trial happened was the last keeper's watch. And that was it. So after automation, we're switching gears. We're getting out. (laughs) Yeah. We're getting out of the sad event. We're just going on to what happened with the lighthouse after this whole shenanigan where now it's automated after automation, the weight, which produced the energy Mm -hmm. for the clockwork mechanism was taken by George C. Davidson an attendant boatman who frequented Little Ross and was used as a mooring weight for his motor launch. (laughs) And they think now it's probably at the bottom of Kirk Cabri Harbor. So he's just like, I'll take this. (laughs) I come here enough. This is mine. (laughs) The lighthouse is automated with a gas powered system. It has a cylinder with bellows and a piston that moves under incoming propane, like slowly. And after five seconds of filling, a trip valve is activated and the gas is released to mantles to provide a quick flash. That's really neat. So this is a really weak light, but it ran efficiently for 43 years with only like weekly maintenance and refueling. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. That you don't need to replace it all this time. In 2003, the gas light was replaced with solar powered light. Which is, I think... It's early for solar power. 2003. 2003, yeah. Oh. I think most lighthouses now are solar-powered. Have that solar makes sense. Lights. There was a big restoration period for this lighthouse. Yeah. Uh, starting in 1986, plans were put in place to restore the Keeper's Cottages, owned at that time by St. Mary's Isle Estate, which covered the island and the buildings with the exception of the tower and like the storerooms that yeah. were connected to the tower. They leased the property to three people that wanted to undertake this job, and they weren't like construction people. They were just people that wanted to live on an island. They, it seemed kind of wholesome. I didn't write their whole story out. I didn't. I don't even have their names in here, which is kind of sad. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. Yeah. And they were signed for an eleven-year lease under the condition that they fix the buildings by the time the lease was up, which seems like a long time. But these houses were a mess because they hadn't been maintained or anything since years automation so metal framing was destroyed or vandalized wood rotting beyond repair swallows nesting in all parts of the house Mm. and all appliances were rusted and couldn't be salvaged so during this restoration they combined the two cottages into one to form a living room because they didn't have living rooms which i thought was interesting it was kind of like just individual rooms yeah it was just like a place where the keepers slept and that was it so they didn't have like yeah sp- common room yeah and the the kitchen was kind of where people hung out if they did have company especially with all those oat cakes <laughs> <laughs> i like that sound 
The room in which the murder took place was combined with another bedroom, and initially the renters said that there was always an eerie chill in this room, a problem which vanished forever after the two bedrooms were combined. Huh. Yeah. Additionally, a man in a blue hat was commonly seen in the house, disappearing and reappearing at random. That is scary. Ghost man with a blue hat. One of the renter's friends visited and painted Celtic... Celtic? Celtic. Celtic? Mm-hmm. Oh. Painted Celtic... Celtic? Oh, my gosh. Painted Celtic runes on the exposed beams of the house, and the man was never seen again. <laughs> he didn't like him. He's like, ew, what He's a like, horrible uh, change in decor. This is not how I decorated my place. Uh, in 1992, on what was the 150th anniversary of the lighthouse construction, they threw a party on the island full of friends and family, including John Thompson, who was the last principal keeper. That's awesome. And they all danced to the Little Ross Light, which was a dance that <laughs> happened in Crookedbury. <laughs> At the end of the lease in 1997, the houses were deemed habitable. Mm-hmm. Habitable. And we're given the all clear. So a relationship was built between the three tenants and the Northern Lighthouse Board, which lasted for 30 years before the renters got too old to be alone on the island. <sighs> kind of wholesome. So I couldn't find who owned it after this, but the island itself went up for sale in September of 2017. And it was around 325,000 pounds, which costed less than a two-bedroom apartment in Edinburgh. The lighthouse itself was not included in the sale and remains under the ownership of the Northern Lighthouse Board. And that's what we have. Northern Lighthouse Board? Like, is it a government thing or is it a... It's like our lighthouse board. LHS. U.S. LHS. That's really, that's really neat. It didn't sell, so it's still under possession by the Northern... Uh, the lighthouse is not included in the sale, but the island itself is, I think the purchase is under review. So somebody's bought it. Be cool. You could just walk to the mainland. They're like, oh, you're going to have to have your own helicopter, your own boat. It's like, technically, I could walk. The little bridge. Yeah. Well, they used to walk like uh, sheep to the island for grazing. They also used to have cattle, but they said the grass that grew there upset their tummies. Weird. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it was like too much salt or something. I don't know. I mean, cows eat salt. Like, they have salt licks. Hmm. They go lick a block of salt. So, oh. I don't know. Well, it's, I say it's weird for cows because cows can eat... For, uh, for example, if you have hay and it gets wet or mm-hmm. it starts to rot or it's really old uh, or it's you know it's got weeds in it and it wasn't super clean hay when it was cut, cows will still eat it. Oh. And because of their digestion system, they'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, almost all the time. Sometimes they have bloat, but that's its own concern. But uh, like horses, they will not eat, you know, hay old with stuff. weeds. They will not eat old hay. They will not eat mold um, at all. They're just very, very picky. So kind of neat. Yeah. What were you going to say? Something about your lighthouse. Yeah, <laughs> My lighthouse. <laughs> um, last time on the podcast, I discussed that that Kansas lighthouse was in salina kansas mm-hmm. um i learned a little more i think i can't remember what all i said it was on a, a par three golf course and it was one of the first things they built and um it wasn't quite as tall as i thought it's probably like 50 feet tall oh but it's it did it's look pretty five neat. stories it's, it's still taller than like 
10 feet. Yeah. Well, there's a clubhouse at the base of it. Whoa. That's what I, that's what I based off the elevation oh. on it. Okay. No, but um, we were talking about that golf course went out of business. There was an article written that said, you know, it's still a work in progress, but it's a really great place. You should visit, you know, kind, of, a, kind of like a, yeah, Cute. It's, it's kind of not the best golf course, but you should check it out. Um, and then the locals were fighting it and becoming an off-road place. Mm-hmm. It did become an off-road place. Oh, no. They kept the name. Um, Who cares? Harbor. Prairie Harbor. Harbor Prairie. Prairie Harbor, I want to say. Um, it was motocross, and it was dirt bikes racing. Um, and it was open to the public. I looked at their Facebook page. They had six years of active business there. Um, it was open to the public. You could pay like $15 and then yeah. race and ride. Um, and then there was a statement made about liability. Maybe somebody got hurt or killed. Oh. And so it went private. And now no. I, someone privately owns it, or maybe it's a private riders club or something. But mm-hmm. either way, the lighthouse is no longer there, which is a real bummer. They should have left it. Yeah. Even if what? it turned into motocross, they should have left it. Yeah. Just make it where you check in. <laughs> yeah. So either way, just thought I'd close that out. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I'm going to post pictures of little Ross and also Hugh and Robert and maybe some other stuff if I find things on our Instagram at the lighthouse lowdown. And you can listen to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. And all of these options are listed on our website at podpage.com slash the lighthouse lowdown. And our next episode is going to be in another week. You're welcome. And this one's going to be a little bit shorter, hopefully, if I can manage. Um, because after this, Vince and I will be going to North Carolina to see some real-life lighthouses. It's happening. It is happening. So, thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time on The Lighthouse. Loader. Thanks for coming. Bye. We're going to do that. Oh, yeah.